Lord, we ask that you prepare our hearts and minds for your message for us today. Help us to learn and apply the principles in this lesson you would have us to learn. We are thankful for your provision of justification for us and for the willingness and obedience of Jesus to take on our sins so that we may receive forgiveness and salvation. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, one word of instruction this morning is that uh, some of, there are a lot of verses listed after some of the sections here, and, but we're not going to read them all unless you, you something for you to read when you get home. But the ones that are in bold are the ones I want you to, to, to read. It's just kind of a sampling of, of the ones that cover the, the subjects that we're on. And once again, you know that we're using um, Paul David Tripp's uh, Do You Believe? And we're on chapter 17, which is entitled uh, Justification in Everyday Life. Uh, justification has been defined as just as if I never sinned. In my opinion, it's probably the most important doctrine we need to understand. It sets Christianity out as unique from all other religions. So let's get started. Who wants to read first? Who's got the mic? Those whom God calls, he also freely justifies by forgiving our sins and by counting and accepting us as righteous. We are not justified because of anything done in us or done by us, but solely because of what Christ has done for us. God does not justify us by declaring that our faith or our obedience count as righteousness, but rather God justifies us by declaring that the obedience of Christ and his payment for our sin by grace count as ours. So we need to receive, accept, and rest in Christ and his righteousness as the sole means of our justification always remembering that even our ability to, to believe is not from us, but it is a gift of God. Faith, faith that uh, receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness is the only means of justification, but is always accomplished uh, or accompanied by all other saving graces. This faith is not a dead faith, but it works itself out in love. By his obedience and death, Christ fully paid the debt of all who are justified. He made real and full satisfaction of the Father's justice on our behalf, because he was given by the Father for us, and his obedience and payment were freely accepted in our place. Our justification is only by free grace. It is the justification of sinners that both exact justice and, and uh, exact the that the, both the exact justice and rich grace of God shine with glory. For eternity, it has been God's good pleasure to justify those who are chosen. Christ, when the time was right, died for our sins and rose again for our justification. Yet we were not justified until the Holy Spirit at a later time actually applies the, the work of Christ to us. God continues to forgive the sins of all who are justified. Even though we can't fall out of our justification, we may fall under our Father's displeasure because of our sin. But if we humble ourselves, confess our sins, plead for forgiveness, renew our faith, and repent, the light of God's face will once again shine on us. 
in the Reserva versus there. <laughs> Isaiah uh, 53, 5 and 6 is next. And if you're someone is looking that up right at the moment, I'd like to also say that uh, we have a lot of material to go through today. We probably won't make it, go get through it all, but it's there for you to read when you get home. And I certainly hope that you do. But uh, we do want to have your discussion, and that's what we're looking for after each section here today. Isaiah 53, 5 to 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John 1.12. John 1.12 says... But to all who died, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me see, where am I going? Oh, hold on, I'm not done yet. <laughs> then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Then Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, our first question today is, uh, what does <clears throat> repentance have to do with justification? You got a clue for that in the last sentence that was read. Well, if we don't repent, we haven't accepted the, the promise, the, the gift, right? So justification can't happen if we don't repent, I don't think. Okay. The, the question kind of ties back to Isaiah 53, 6, that each of us is turned to his own way. So unless we turn to God's way, unless we turn around, then... Um, there's no way we can act, even receive the gift, to, to back to uh, Dennis's point. I think uh, we read, read about how repentance is a gift of grace from God, just like justification is. 
So, so, so they're both ultimately the work of God in a person. But you might also say that repentance is how the internal activity of someone justified, where they recognize they're sinners and they need to change and desire to change, which, again, is only by the work of the Spirit of God through the, through the gospel. So I don't Uh, justification isn't dependent on our repentance our repentance is dependent on our justification Um, in our old fallen dead nature we will not repent we will not God gives us a new nature because he justifies us, and the fruit of being justified is that we repent. Um, And you see that when you look at Ezekiel and you look at Jeremiah. When we look at the new covenant versus old covenant designs about how the Lord will give us a new heart and the Lord will do all these things, and then sequentially it says, then you will abhor your sin. It describes repentance. Right? So um, there's nothing that we can do to be justified, and that includes repenting of our sin. I just remember gra- you know, trying to gra- grasp this, and um, it was in my own head. I had to come to terms of how God, how holy God is, and how well, much of a sinner I am, and realize that I had to be justified, or for, and so therefore my desire, as Rob Roy is, you know, what I'm interpreting as Rob Roy is saying, is I had to have that desire to repent to my holy God, and that's justification. I think also just um, knowing how it, much it grieves our heart to be, to make um, our Father have displeasure with our sin, it makes us run to Him because that's the last thing we want. Is it, it grieves our heart knowing that we've not come to Him to ask for forgiveness. It just comes natural for us to run to Him. When you are convicted in your heart, as um, was described earlier, that uh, you must repent, you might ask yourself, well, what does it look like? And uh, the Great Commission ends up, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you observe all that I command you. And that, I think, is another way of saying repenting. Okay, how does sanctification relate to justification? Um, 
so justification is an immediate status before God. I am, I am just before God because of what Christ has done. Sanctification is the progression of becoming more like Christ over time, which will not be perfected in this life, but upon my death, because anyone who's unsanctified cannot be in the presence of God or will not be able to be in, in heaven, um, I will be fully sanctified um, at the time of my death um, with a fully sanctified body at the time of Christ's return. So um, in that, uh, most of the time what we're referring to as sanctification is the time between um, becoming regenerate, the time between Christ saving me um, and freeing me from a slavery of sin and progressively becoming more of a slave to Christ. Just wanted to add something to what uh, Rob Roy had described earlier too, that you know, if you think about it, as far as the order, um, if you go all the way back to say Abraham, you know, did Abraham repent and then God chose him? No, God chose Abraham and then he gave him instructions about, this is how you're going to worship me. God chose Moses and then added laws and said, this is how it's going to play out. And in a physical and a real way, that's what happened, and that continues to happen today where God chooses his people, and then we respond because there's no other reasonable response than to um, respond with repentance. And then I believe the, justific- or the sanctification part is an ongoing act of that same response, which is continuing to repent and to separate yourself from the sin that clings so closely to us. One thing that I've been thinking of uh, reading this uh, with dealing with repentance and sanctification, to a certain degree, I think repentance is temporary because we still live in a fallen state um, in the sense of we still have a sin nature. Sanctification endures forever. When we're into the state of glory, we no longer will need to repent in a sense because we will no longer have the capacity to sin but we will continue to be sanctified. We will continue to please the Lord in how we live and think forever. So sanctification is uh, part of the world without end. Repentance is still in this life on earth because we are not perfected yet in glory. So. Shall we continue? Yep. Okay. Well. Uh, yeah, go ahead. She, she has a question. Oh, wait just a minute here. Uh, I was check, check, waiting to see if there was somebody else that wanted to comment. Uh, but I found a comment made by uh, Robert P. Leitner, who says, Justification and sanctification are closely related, though not identical. They are, in fact, inseparable. To be justified is to be declared righteous before God, and to be sanctified is to be set apart. The one presupposes the other. Justification has to do with the believer's righteous standing before God. Sanctification has to do primarily with the believer's holiness in life, his walk before men. Now you could read. 
understanding the doctrine of, <coughs> of justification. I spent one year in my personal devotions in Patriarch. It was a rich experience that deepened both my understanding and thankfulness for the justifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am persuaded that you cannot see the multitude uh, glory display of the doctrine of the justification until you look at it through the lens of the Old Testament sacrificial system. In that system of repentant daily, monthly, Sabbath, and special day sacrifices, you begin to see how seriously God takes sin. Nothing gets the attention and the pages of the just instructions like the sacrificial requirements do. The uh, sacrificial system is not only Israel's means of having ongoing instructions like the sacrificial uh, requirements do. The sacrificial system is not only Israel's means of having ongoing fellowship with God, but it is a central institution of their entire culture. Nothing else rises to the level of the importance of this call to regular sacrifices because no other reality is more important in the life of Israel. With the exception of the existence of God, then acknowledging the presence of sin and the need for atonement. At the center of the life and culture of Israel was a scene of daily violence and gore. This blood-spurting animal resisting and wild wails of death scene was a part of everyday life. The scene of priests covered in blood as they struggled to slaughter a huge bull or cut up the lifeless corpse of a lamb was a normal thing. The blood never stopped flowing and the animals never stopped dying day after day after day. It is brutal and uh, stomach churning to consider. I've butchered chickens on a farm and I know how bloody, smelly, and disgusting it is. But that experience is nothing compared to the daily routine in Israel. Every drop of animal blood was a reminder of the huge gap between a perfectly holy God and his consistently unholy people. Every bellow or bleed of an animal as it was being slaughtered was a cry for a better sacrifice, one that would finally satisfy the righteous requirements of a holy God. Every step of the priest as he trudged his way to the tabernacle to do his bloody, smelly job one more time was a sign that something more was needed. Every time an Israelite family called through their flock to find the appropriate lamb for sacrifice was a reminder that God is holy and we are not. The bloody, noisy slaughter of each animal confronted every Israelite with the truth that it was his sin that caused this animal's death. The violence, the blood... The horrible odors and the repetition of it all was a prophetic cry for a Messiah lamb. The bloody system would not end with a divine declaration of blanket acceptance, 
No, it would take a sacrifice to end this system of unending sacrifices. You should feel a profound tension as you read through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. This tension should stop you, get your attention, and make you uncomfortable. It is the tension that no one in Israel was able to escape. It is a mournful soundtrack of life in a fallen world. You hear it first in the garden as Adam and Eve are hiding from God. You know right away that something horrible has gone wrong. People made for a relationship with God shouldn't want or need to hide from him. You can't look into that scene in the garden without concluding that something hugely significant is wrong that needs to be rectified, or life will never be what it was designed to be. Here is the tension. How in the world can a perfectly holy God have communion with constitutionally unholy people? How will sinners ever be able to commune with the one for whom they were made? If relationship with God is at the core of human identity, meaning, and purpose, what kind of lost, insane life will human beings have without it? Will God bridge this huge, life-destroying sin gap? And if he will, how will he do it? This is where the tension intensifies. How will God extend his mercy to those he loves without compromising his holy justice? How in the world will mercy and justice ever work together? The answer is that sacrifices have to be made that satisfy the requirements of God's justice so he can extend the mercy of his forgiveness to sinners. The problem with the Old Testament sacrifices is that the satisfaction they supplied was sadly temporary. Clearly a greater, final sacrifice was needed for justification for sinners to be final and complete. The entire old system, with all of its blood and gore, was a daily cry for the final lamb of sacrifice, Jesus. Let me summarize with several points what we learn as we observe the Old Testament sacrificial system. One, the incredible, patient, and forgiving mercy of the Lord towards sinners. Two, the uncompromising holiness of God. Three, God's righteousness anger with sin. Fourth, the inescapable seriousness of sin. Fifth, the inability of sin-flawed people to earn acceptance with God on their own. Sixth, the inadequacy of God's law as a means of achieving acceptance with him. Seven, the inadequacy and temporary nature of sacrificing bulls and goats for sin. And eight, the need for a once-for-all sacrifice that extends God's mercy without compromising his justice. What needed to be done, no human being could do. What needed to be done, God would have to do in the triad of glorious miracles of grace, the incarnation of the Son, his perfect life and acceptable sacrifice, and his resurrection victory. It is only in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that the tension is ended. In Jesus, God's perfect justice and forgiving mercy kiss Perfect and justice, sorry, and victory. It is only in the life, death, okay, forgiving, mercy, kiss. So a substitute was needed, a second Adam, who would live the righteous life that the first Adam sadly failed to live. 
It is important to note that the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ did not begin with his suffering and death, but with his birth. Every righteous thought and desire was for us. Every act of moral purity was for us. Every moment with Jesus, when Jesus resisted temptation, was for us. His victory over the temptation of Satan, temptations of Satan was for us. His refusal to live in fear of religious authorities was for us. It was vital that the second Adam establish a track record that was unsustained by any sin, unstained by any sin of the word through thought, desire, or action of any kind or at any time. But the second Adam must do vastly more than the first Adam could have done. This is another way we are need this is another way we needed for him to be our substitute. The second Adam came not only to be our righteousness, but also to be our, our sacrifice for sin. A payment for sin needed to be made that would once and for all satisfy God's requirement and allow sinners to be forgiven and to live in the peace, live at peace with God. The combination of his substitutionary obedience and his substitutionary sacrifice means that all who put their trust in him are justified. That is, they are fully and completely forgiven and able to stand before God as righteous. None of this can, none of this can any sinner earn, deserve, or achieve on his own. The righteous life and the acceptance, acceptable death of Jesus is the only means by which justifying grace can flow to sinners like you and me. Notice the clarity and the celebratory gratitude of the following passages when it comes to God's justifying mercy in Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into his grace, in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. Not only that we not not only that, but we rejoice in the suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because of God's love. It has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5, 6 through 11. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would ev someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? 
All this is from 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. All this is from God, who, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. First Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.2 uh, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All right, Galatians 2.16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 6.14 But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There simply is no such thing as Christian theology that doesn't have a clear understanding of the doctrine of justification at its core. This doctrine creates the great derivation point between Christianity and all other religions in your religion. All other former religions are built on some form of theology that the gods are upset with human beings and need to be appeased. Each lays out some means by which you have to constantly work to quell the anger of God by your obedience to rules and offering of repeated sacrifices. Each is a system of fear, divine anger, and bondage to law out of which the believer never rises. But even the irreligious are concerned with righteousness. Everyone wants to be right. Everyone wants to think he has good, a good track record. People tend to want to be accepted because they are good. What are you left with if you deny the existence of a holy God and his forgiving mercies? You are left with only yourself. You essentially have nothing, nothing more to trust than your wisdom, strength, and goodness. Your life is reduced to do right, good results, do bad, bad things happen. It is a life burdened by the constant need to perform, the constant need to measure up, the constant need to build self-convincing arguments for your goodness. It is, an exhaust, it is an exhausting life, an exhausting way to live that never works. The, re the reality is that not only do we fall short of God's holy standards, but we fall short of our standards for ourselves. Not only do we break God's rules, but we consistently break our own rules. The reason the doctrine of justification is so precious <clears throat> is that every human being desperately needs forgiveness. 
You don't enter into the glorious rest of justification by hoping in yourself, your efforts, your intentions, or your ability to somehow, some way, measure up to God's requirements. Imagine a gym with a 40-foot high ceiling. Imagine I entered into the gym with the intentions of standing in the middle of that gym floor and jumping up and touching the ceiling. If you knew my purpose for entering that gym, you would say, this is a truly insane or delusional man. It will never happen. Imagine further that you stand by the door and watch me begin to jump. You are overcome by the futility of what I'm attempting, and you feel sorry for me as I get more exhausted and further and further away from my goal. You would begin to think, this man needs to admit his inability and give up. He will never do this. Whatever hope he had when he be entered the gym, whatever hope he is, is keeping him jumping, is false hope. So it is with justification. The doorway to the warehouse of God's justifying mercies is hopelessness. Yes, it is true. When we come to right understanding with God, hopelessness is the doorway to hope. You will have to abandon hope in yourself in order to run in the hope of humility and confession to God. This redeeming hopelessness ushers you into the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells. It leads you to the mercy seat where eternal, secure, and unshakable hope is found. It is not hope you have earned, but hope that has been earned by another and granted to you by grace. There would be no such thing as Christianity if there were any other way that a human being could reconcile himself to God and stand righteous before him based on his own performance. If this were possible, the gospel would be a lie and the biblical narrative would not be needed. But the gospel is not a lie. It is the most essential and most glorious message ever written and spoken. In his righteousness, life, and substitutionary death, Jesus made it possible for us to be forgiven, accepted, and declared righteous by God. This is the ultimate good news. Well, that was a long section. <coughs> but we have a question for that one. How does grace and mercy relate to justification? I know we're getting theological today, but this is an important section. So definitions of grace and mercy uh, might seem prudent here. So mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. Very good. So in that way, they relate to justification. Um, these are received, both of these are received as God justifies us in Christ. Let's move on to where it's, but there is more good news. We don't want to miss the good news of today. You can't do justice to the truth of God's justifying grace through the Lord Jesus Christ without considering one of the 
beautiful redemptive graces that attaches itself to this, to this precious truth. Our justification is not just about our legal standing before God, but it also, but it's also about a brand new identity as his child. Understanding this new identity is not only important to understanding the full implications of this wonderful truth, but it has implications for how you live your life. This new identity can be summarized in two of the most important words in the Bible's redemptive vocabulary, in Christ. It is impossible to do biblical justice to the truth we are considering without talking about our union with Christ. This truth, that, gra that by grace we have been united to Christ, is a dominant theme in Paul's writing. He uses the phrase, in Christ, 33 times. Paul says that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. By God's sovereign redemptive purpose, we were united to Christ before we took our first breath. It is an amazing thing to consider. It was not that we got smart, found Christ, and entered in. No, God placed us in Christ as a sovereign decision of his redeeming grace. All of the graces of the gospel flow to us because we are in Christ. We are justified because we are in Christ. We are being sanctified because we are in Christ. We are loved as adopted children because we are in Christ. We are, for, we are forgiven because we are in Christ. We have every need supplied because we are in Christ. We are objects of the Father's love because we are in Christ. We have eternal hope because we are in Christ. Union with Christ is the fountainhead from which flows the Christian's every spiritual blessing, repentance and faith, pardon, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. Because of our union in Christ, we have, we have new potential. One of the most encouraging passages in the New Testament is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice the three elements in this wonderful declaration that apply to all believers. First is a statement of historical gospel fact. I have been crucified with Christ. We are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. This means that Christ died, we died, and when Christ rose, we too rose to newness of life. Jesus didn't die to purchase savability. No, the names of all who were united with him to the cross Oh, the names of all who are united to him, to the cross, with him. His payment for sin was our payment because we were united with him when he suffered and died on the cross. There is a statement of present gospel reality. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It is impossible with a few words to capture the extent and glory of this statement and its implications for our daily living. Clearly, Paul is not saying that he is physically dead. If he were, he couldn't have written this. He is unpacking an amazing reality for every believer between the already of conversion and the not yet of home going. Paul is saying that because of our union in Christ, the life that now animates us, that ignites our new thoughts, desires, and actions is not ours. It's Christ's. 
The gospel is not a system of self-reformation. The gospel is about a union that rescues and transforms us. There is something more than a desire for change and a commitment to self-discipline that changes us. What changes us is the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ that now resides inside of us. Because we are united with him, we are empowered by him to do what he could never what, to do what we could never have done before. That was good news. The next question is, where does faith fit into the doctrine of justification? Justification is our status, but faith is the animating energy that allows us to be God's servant once we are justified. I learned that an understanding of faith involves three things, knowledge, agreement, and trust. Um, you have to know something, you have to agree that it's true, and then you put your uh, life on that, basically. So I think in, in terms of justification, you have to know what it teaches, which is what we've been looking at. You have to agree that that's what God has chosen to do, and then you put your trust in that relying on that there's no other way to be enter, enter in that uh, whether you use uh, the door house or door to God's warehouse there's no other way through but through uh, the gospel I guess yeah Steve that's 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 right on the on the button there those three aspects of what faith is you can have a man or a woman believe that or be aware of the gospel and agree that that's what that's what the gospel is but i don't be, i don't believe that it's true we believe that islam exists we don't believe that islam is true you can have someone believe not only that and understand what the gospel is but agree with it that's that second step i absolutely agree that god has mercy on sinners and that christ came to save sinners and that it's all of grace and that you're saved by faith. But that still isn't enough because while you can agree with those first two steps, you may doubt that it specifically applies to yourself. You may believe that, it, that it's true and that it applies to many men and women, but not necessarily to yourself. The third part's critical. Not only that you understand the gospel and that you believe the gospel's true, but that third part, that trust. I believe that not only did Christ come and die for sinners, but that I am one of the sinners that Christ came and died for. So those are the three points of faith that you're walking through. Well done. I think James says it well when he, he contrasts living faith versus dead faith. And uh, living faith is that faith which is active and, and evidences your justification, that you are justified, you have been justified, you are changed, you are producing evidence by way of good works. And so you can see the connection with faith and justification in that manner. Well, we don't have time to uh, read through the final uh, section, but it, it is a 
uh, the first sentence there tells you something about it, and that the passage ends with the gospel commitment. And I challenge you to read that uh, section uh, when you get home today. And we, and I also had a question that you can ponder on, and that is, what stands out to you about that we talked about today? Just if you go back over it as you're uh, reading that last section, ask yourself that question: Is what that was said today stands out to you? So let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us today. Thank you for the gift of the person, work and justifying grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your holy word. Help us to be faithful students of the scriptures and knowledgeable teachers of your truth whenever you provide those opportunities. God, please allow us to be your disciples in the fullest biblical sense. Make us communicators of your grace and caring friends of other brothers and sisters in the faith. We love you, Lord. Amen.